When Jesus saw his ministry drawing huge crowds, he climbed a hillside. Those who were apprenticed to him, the committed, climbed with him. Arriving at a quiet place, he sat down and taught his climbing companions. This is what he said. Highways, straight, who's on the highway? Straight, like get there, get this thing over with, that's how I am. Who's a more scenic trip? Like, find the little side route, you know, world's largest ball of yarn, you know. You won't see those things on the highway. You have to, you have to get off the beaten track. Uh, my parents were definitely scenic trip people. Um, I'm gonna move this because I'm already tripping over there. Um, they were definitely scenic trip people. And my siblings and I were very much highway people. We were in the back, we were like, just get us to our destination so we can get out of this car, mom and dad. And then be like, let's go on a drive. And my sister and I, uh, we refer to it as a death drive because we were like, they're surely taking us out here to the middle of nowhere to finally get rid of us and kill us. And um, they'd be like, we've never gone this way. Let's go this way. We're like, go the highway. It's straight, it's fast. You know, up here, it's always, uh, we, we look at the route and we're like, we can take the turnpike and pay a little bit of money, or we can take this long, windy way. We're like, turnpike, get there as quickly as we can. One time, uh, when we lived, when I was growing up, I lived in Tennessee, and uh, we were about six hours from the beach in Florida, and so we'd go down there during the summer um, on vacation. I remember one trip, we were heading down there, and we're on the highway. It's highway all the way down to Florida, right? We get off the highway. I'm like, this is not Florida, this is Alabama. Why are we getting off the highway? So I yell up to the front of the car, I'm like, Dad, why are you getting off the highway? Are we getting gas? Are we getting food? Like, what's... He's like, oh, uh, we're gonna take a little roundabout trip. And I knew, like, oh great, like, what was this gonna be? It's a straight shot, why are we getting off? And so we start driving, and I'm finally like, Dad, where are you taking us? He's like, I heard about this thing on the internet, the Alberta, Alabama Sausage Festival. And we're going to the sausage festival. And um, I'm like, we're going to the beach. He's like, oh no, no, no. This will only be a couple hours extra on our trip to go to the sausage festival festival, and then come back. And I think I have a picture here. This is a real thing. Now it was canceled this year because of COVID, I looked it up. But Alberta, Alabama, everybody who shows up gets a free German sausage. And the whole town, which is this little town in Alabama, it's like overrun with people. We actually parked in somebody's front yard. They had a sign out parking $5. And uh, people are just parking everywhere. And the whole town just smells like cooking sausage. And everybody's got a sausage on a stick and they're just walking around. And there's a bunch of vendors and booths. My sister and I were visible. We're like, we thought we were going to the beach. We eventually got there and it was a great trip. Uh, but my parents like, the roundabout route. They like the scenic trip. Mom, dad, as you're listening to this, you know it's true. Uh, my dad still brings up about the sausage festival. He's like, remember that great vacation where we went to the sausage festival? And I was like, yeah, I remember. <laughs> um, over the last few weeks, we've been talking about the Sermon on the Mount. This is actually the longest sermon series I've ever preached here at Horizon because I tend to get real bored with stuff and I have to move on to something else. But the Sermon on the Mount has been long. This is actually our 13th week in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Um, the Sermon on the Mount is, of course, where Jesus told his followers, this is what it looks like to live and love like I do. This is what it means to be a disciple, a student, an apprentice of my way 
of life. Now, maybe you're listening, or you've been listening, maybe you're watching online, or you're listening to the podcast, um, or maybe a friend brought you, and you think, okay, Alex, Jesus is a long-dead rabbi, and I really don't care, um, I really don't care what he had to say. I mean, he had some nice Yoda-like sayings, but he wasn't like that, he wasn't an important person, you know? Um, I think that even if you don't believe that Jesus is God, even if you don't believe that he came back from the dead, thank you, Darby, for keeping me from killing myself up here. Um, I think that if you lived in love like Jesus, it would change your life. And I think if everyone on this planet lived in love like Jesus, I think it would change the world. If we want to change the world, I think it starts with us living and loving like Jesus and then introducing other people to the ways of Jesus. You don't have to believe he was God right now. I hope someday you do. You don't have to believe he rose from the dead right now. I hope someday he convinces you of that. But try out his way of life, or in the words of the Bible, taste and see if his way of living is actually good. Jesus claims that his way of life is actually an abundant life. And I don't know about you, but the way of the, that our culture and our uh, media presents of getting rich and having everything and that's the good life, Jesus presents a counterpoint and I, I would just suggest try it out. See if he's actually true. See if what he says is actually real. If it actually resonates. Now, we're coming to the end of our series here. We're just in the last couple verses of Matthew chapter 7. And Jesus here gives his followers three warnings as he wraps up his teachings. Let's look at them in Matthew chapter 7 verses 13 through 23. Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction. There are many people who go through that gate. How narrow is the gate and how difficult the road that leads to life and few find it. Jesus is really selling us, right, on the Sermon on the Mount. He's like, hey, this is a narrow, difficult road. Verse 15, be on your guard against false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes, or you get figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. He does kind of sound like Yoda right there. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You'll recognize people by their fruit. Now, everyone who, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we prophesy in your name? We drove out demons in your name? We did many miracles in your name? And then I'll say to them, I never knew you. Get away from me, you lawful spirits. Now Jesus here suggests there are two paths through life. There's a highway and there's a scenic route. There's a straight path that is clean and clear. There's a narrow path and a broad path. Or in other words, there's his way of life and our way of life. There's his way to live and love and my way to live and love. And he makes it clear that most people pick their way over his way. And just some quick word associations, you know, the broad way is smooth, it's easy, it's comfortable, it's safe, it's flashy, it's glamorous. The narrow way is rocky and tight and slow, perhaps dangerous. And uh, most people are just like, yeah, I'll take the easier option. You know, like, I don't want the harder way. Why make things harder on myself than I need to? And yet Jesus says one path leads to what your deepest longing of your heart is, and one path doesn't. And we often think, man, the smooth, easy, comfortable, safe path will get me where I want to go. And Jesus says, nope, the, what you really want may lay down unexpected paths. 
Now, he kicked off the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 with the Beatitudes. It's like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the humble. Um, he was contradicting the idea that the pinnacle of human flourishing, the good life, the abundant life that we all want, he's like, it doesn't come down a path of money and power and faith. That's what our culture tells us, right? That's what we kind of naturally start growing up thinking. Man, if I got rich enough, I'd have the good life. If I had enough authority and power so people couldn't control me, it'd be the good life. If I had health and wealth, it'd be the good life. But Jesus in the Beatitudes says, the abundant life, the life that your soul, your deepest, innermost being longs for, comes down to unexpected paths. And those could be paths that, quite honestly, aren't very fun to walk. According to Jesus, you can enjoy an abundant life even if you are poor, even if you have a bad background, even if you come from a bad family, even if you've had to suffer through some sorrows and loss and difficulties. The abundant life is not cut off for you just because you don't have what the world says it takes. Because actually that path may not lead where you want. So Jesus said most people look at their path, their way of living and loving, and they look at his path and they say, yeah, I'll just do things my way. It just seems easier, it just seems simpler, it seems like that'll get me where I need to go. He's at the end of his teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount, and he recognizes this is a critical point. He's about to stop the Sermon on the Mount, and there's going to be a natural invitation here. Am I going to do things Jesus' way? Am I going to become a disciple, a student, an apprentice of what, his way of life? Or am I just going to go back to doing things my way? He knows that the people listening, the people who have gathered on this hillside, are about to make a choice. And as we come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we're about to make a choice. Am I going to do things his way or my way? Am I going to walk his path or my path? Now, with modern Westerners, we don't like restriction. As soon as somebody tells me not to do something, I'm like, I want to do that so bad. <laughs> like, um, when I was growing up, there was this, um, it was this little interactive cassette. Yeah, 80s, you know. But we had a cassette, you put it in this machine, and then you could press buttons, and the story would actually go along with the button you pressed. And I had this one called Grover from Sesame Street, Don't Push the Red Button. And so every page I would press the red button. I was just that kid, you know? Like, they gave this to me, and my parents were like, oh, he's going to be in trouble. Like, and every page, he's like, whatever you do, don't press the red button. Press the yellow, the green, the blue button. I'm like, red, red. Every page, Grover hated me, you know? Now everybody else hates me. I've got to grow up and press the red button. No, just kidding. We don't like restrictions. We like freedom, right? As Americans, we like freedom. We've redefined freedom to mean no restrictions and no consequences for our decisions. My atheist friend this week, uh, one of my best friends, he's an atheist. Uh, we have a good relationship, good conversations. Uh, he told me this week, he said, if God really made me free, I should be allowed to hate him without consequence. I, I think many times we think that freedom means that I can do whatever I want and there's no consequences for it. But freedom means we have a choice. That no one is forcing us to make a choice, we can choose. That doesn't mean that you can make a bad choice and there not be consequences. No one forces us to choose one option or the other, or freedom doesn't save us from the consequences of a bad choice. Now Jesus here is putting what sounds like some restrictive things on us. He's saying this is a restrictive path, and naturally I bristle at that. I'm like, I don't want to be restricted, let me do what I want. But just remember, Jesus commands things not to control us, He's not like, a hey, psychological experiment. Can I get them to do what I want? Jesus commands things in order to funnel us towards joy, 
Jesus said, this is the life you want. This is a life full of joy. These things over here won't bring you joy. They'll actually rob your life of joy. I'm trying to funnel you toward what you really deeply want. He's pointing us toward choices that will lead us to the life that we really want. He never forces us to pick his way, even knowing that if he did, it would satisfy our deepest longings. He respects you and your free agency too much to force you. He lets you choose. Now, as weird as it is to think about, we usually think about love gives us wings, right? Love sets us free. Love actually binds. Now, that's a weird way of thinking about it, right? Like, that sounds negative. But in a marriage ceremony, we commit to love our spouse by what? By forsaking all others. I wear this ring on my finger, not as a shackle, but as a mark that our love has bound us together. Um, she needs to have her rings resized, but she, she wears them when uh, they fit. <laughs> um, there's restrictions on our marriage, but those don't make our marriage worse. They make our marriage better. Like uh, Those are healthy restrictions that make our love for each other fonder and safer and better. So his first warning is clear. You've got a choice to make. I've got a choice to make. If you pick my way, it isn't an easy stroll in the park, but it'll get you where you want to go. Next comes his next warning in verses 15 through 20. Here's where Jesus warns about false prophets. And you're like, I don't listen to prophets. Like, when was the last time I saw a prophet? You know, you might see somebody with a, the end is coming sign outside of something. You're like, I just ignore those guys. So good, we can skip over this section, right? Because we don't listen to any prophets. I don't know any prophets. Let's move along. Um, a prophet isn't, is the, as Jesus is using the word here, wasn't a predictor of the future. He was a guide to a preferred, preferred future. Prophets in the Bible rarely told the future. They mostly said, here's the path you're on and where it's heading. Here's a different path and where that will lead. All throughout the Old Testament, prophets would show up and they say, hey, Israel, you're supposed to be representatives of the one true God, but you're on this path and it's going to lead to destruction. You should be on this path over here that leads to life. A prophet wasn't a predictor of the future. He was a guide to a preferred future. So a prophetic voice is a visionary who offers a path to where people want to go. Now, when we define prophet like that, all of a sudden there's a lot more prophets in our lives than we thought. And maybe a lot more false prophets. And so maybe we need to pay attention to what Jesus was saying. In fact, I think that there are prophets on podcasts and politicians and psychologists and pastors and priests and rabbis and talk show hosts and friends and scientists and professors, politicians, authors, YouTube and TikTok stars, mentors, you can't go anywhere without a prophetic voice saying, hey, you're on this path. You want to get on this path? I have a friend who just started a multi-level marketing uh, business, and he's like, hey, you're tired all the time? Start taking my herbal supplements, you know? Like, that's a prophetic voice. Here's the preferred future you want. Now give me some money, and I'll get you there. Whether you are religious or not, whether you consider yourself spiritual or not, there are prophetic voices that you are listening to. There are people that you look to in order to make sense of your world and to get you where you want to go. There are people you listen to and learn from. And regardless of their religious connection or not, prophets naturally use spiritual language. Start looking for this this week. As you listen to your podcast or your talk show hosts or your friends or professors, these people who are trying to guide you down a path, they start using very spiritual language. They talk about purpose and destiny. They talk about morality. They talk about right and wrong. You'll see people start using the spiritual language all over the place. 
It's usually a good way to pick up on, oh, this is a prophetic voice. They're trying to tell me a path to a future that they think that I should get to. Um, when I was in high school, my family um, started attending this church. It was a fundamentalist Christian church. They loved to denounce false prophets. Here's how they denounce, here's how they define false prophets. Anyone that wasn't them. Right? Like everybody else is wrong, but us. We're the last bastion of truth, you know? Um, I'm not suggesting that. And I don't think Jesus is suggesting that. That we become so paranoid that we're like, everybody we listen to is a danger and a threat. I can't trust anybody. But Jesus does give us some warning signs to watch out for. Look at verse 15. Um, verse 15 says, be on your guard. Um, the word be on your guard here, or in some translations it might say beware. Uh, this is the idea of staying on course as a ship in the original Greek language. It's like, don't get off course. There are people who you're sailing to a harbor and they're going to say, hey, come over here and get shipwrecked. And Jesus is saying, stay on course. Verse 15, be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. They appear to be one thing, but upon close inspection, they are actually something else. Now, I got a puppy. I know I've been talking about my puppy every week and I can't help it. He's just like taking over my life. Um, my puppy looks so adorable, but when I get close to him and I go in to pet him, sometimes he goes and bites my hand. And I was like, you acted like a lamb, but you ended up being a wolf. And Jesus says, there's some people like that. There's some people who want to be prophetic voices in your life, and they're like, hey, look, this is where you should head. This is the path you should be on. But really, they just want you to get close enough to you to bite you, to consume you, to take advantage of you, to take your money, to control you or manipulate you. Verse 16 through 17, the other warning Jesus gives us about these people is that we will recognize them by their fruit. He gives us this uh, extended metaphor here of, he's like, how many of you have ever picked apples off of a dandelion? You haven't. You know, it doesn't happen. But weeds don't grow good fruit. And he says, when you get up close enough to someone and you spend enough time with them, fruit doesn't happen overnight, right? It happens over a season. When you spend enough time with them and you're close enough to them, you can see them for what they really are and what they produce. Or in other words, their character doesn't match their charisma. And there's some people who are very charismatic. They're just like awesome. You just get, you ever be around looking? You're like, man, I want to be their friend. I don't know what it is about them. They're just so cool. Um, Darby's brother is like that. He just walks in a room. People are like, that guy's cool. Like, everybody just wants to be his friend. I met him. I was like, man, he's so cool. He'll never be my friend. I'm a loser, you know? And, uh, but he became my friend, you know? So, yeah. But there are, there are prophetic voices in your life that are really cool people. They seem like, oh, man, this guy's awesome. This girl's awesome. But really, their character doesn't match their charisma. There are people who have ulterior motives. From a distance, they look safe, but when you get up close, under close inspection, you find out they are dangerous. Before you trust someone, consider how they use their money, what they do with power, how they treat their spouse. It's easy to look good on a stage, or up in front of people, behind a camera, on the internet. There's something about us where we naturally, if someone's on a television screen, we naturally believe what they're saying a little bit more. They've done studies on this. Like someone will tell a lie to a group of people in person, and they're more likely to spot the lie than if that person, they display them on a television screen. 
That's interesting. Which is naturally, it was almost 25% more likely to believe the lie if it came through a television screen. If something is written down, they found that people are more likely to believe it than if it's just spoken. We just naturally give weight to something that's written down or comes through a television screen or a computer screen. It's really good, really easy to look good behind a screen or on a stage. Now, I realize it's ironic for a pastor to say this as I stand in front of people, right? <laughs> as I talk through a screen to people who are watching online. But these things apply to me, too. And if you take a close inspection of my life and you say, whoa, he is power hungry. He treats his spouse like garbage. Go ask Tarby. She's like, yeah, sometimes he does. No. Um, look at how I use my money. Examine and say, is this somebody who just wants to take advantage of me? If so, run. Run away. I don't want you to run away. But if you find that to be true about me, run away. If you find that to be true of someone else, run away. You should examine how I live, how I talk to people, how I treat people, how well I love my wife. And you should do that for the prophetic voices in your life. With the rise of the internet, it's easy sometimes to listen to somebody far away and never be quite sure of what they look like up close. Let's look at Jesus' last warning here in verses 21 to 23. Um, Jesus says, there will be many who will say, Lord, Lord, who won't enter the kingdom of heaven. The ones who went to the kingdom of heaven are the ones who do the will of my Father in heaven. It's a lot easier to say the right things than it is to do the right things, isn't it? Like Darby and I were talking about this one day. We're like, man, it's so easy to agree to do something we know we're supposed to do. And then when the day comes around, we're like, I just don't feel like doing it anymore, right? So it's easy to say, it's much harder to do. Talk is cheap. It doesn't cost anything. You're just like, throw some words out there. Jesus wants followers who live and love like him, not people who just know about him. Not people who just know a lot of facts or have memorized a lot of scripture, but people who actually love their neighbor like Jesus commands. I've met a lot of Christians who know a lot about the Bible. They're like, have you ever noticed this little, tiny little detail hidden way down here that actually has no bearing on anyone's life, but it's just such a fascinating little detail, and they'll talk about it forever, but they treat the cashier who is having an overwhelming day at the grocery store like garbage. Jesus says, yeah, that's not a kingdom person. They might say, Lord, Lord, but they're not a kingdom person. In John 14, 15, Jesus said this, if you love me, Practice my teachings. There's a lot of people who say, I love Jesus because words are cheap. And Jesus says, if you love me, practice what I teach you. Practice the Sermon on the Mount. Become a student of my way of life. You can't say you love Jesus if you don't practice what he said, what he taught. Matthew 5 through 7. He's taught some hard stuff. Loving your enemies. Nonviolence in the face of adversity. He talked about giving when anyone asks, forgiving like we want to be forgiven, doing, taking the initiative to do for others what we want people to do for us. Not waiting like, okay, once they do it for me, then I'll do it for them. No, no. We take the initiative. We act first. Jesus says, if you love me, practice my teachings. If you don't practice my teachings, you don't love me. You can say you love me all day, but until you practice it, I know which leads us with a somber question, right? Do we love Jesus? It's easy to sit in church and be like, yeah, I love Jesus. Jesus is great. But if I don't practice his teachings, then I don't really love him. 
See, to Jesus, love is not an emotion. It is an action word. It's not something we feel. It's something we do. In the Western, modern world, we have a lot of people who memorize facts about Jesus but don't love their neighbors. We have a lot of people who say they love Jesus but don't love their enemies. Saying words without practicing what we say is no guarantee of admittance getting into, that's trying to use big words I can't say, getting into the kingdom of God. Jesus says, in fact, that there will be people who don't know him who will still do impressive things. Um, anybody ever cast out a demon? <laughs> like, you know, maybe, maybe a few people, but maybe somebody online. Um, you know, he says, maybe you'll predict the future. Maybe you'll preach great sermons. Maybe you'll do miracles. Anybody did a miracle? I've prayed about some things that have happened uh, that have seemed miraculous, but I didn't do the miracle. Um, Jesus said, there will be people who do some very impressive things. Some things where you're like, man, God is all over that. So they must be legit. And he says, yeah, they don't know me. People will write best-selling books or preach to huge crowds or grow massive churches. Maybe even miraculous things. But doing impressive things is no guarantee that Jesus is involved. He says that people will show up when he is king and they'll list all their accomplishments to gain entrance. And it won't do them any good. Because he'll say, you didn't know me. You did a bunch of stuff. It was super impressive to other people. It doesn't impress me if I don't have a relationship with you. Jesus says entry into the kingdom is about relationship, not your spiritual resume. That's what he says. All these people will come up and they'll say, Lord, didn't we do this? Didn't we do this? And didn't we do this? And he says, I'll say I never knew you. No one earns their spot in his kingdom. Every spot is a gift bought with his blood. I like how Titus 3, 5-7 puts it. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because we did the right things, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that having our relationship with him made right by this undeserved gift of love, we might become heirs in the royal family of King Jesus, having the hope of eternal life. Now Jesus ends this passage here with this, this sobering announcement in verse 23. I never knew you. Get away from me, lawbreakers. Some translations will say evil doers. Now we usually think of evil like stealing, committing adultery, you know, like, uh, I don't killing somebody. These are evil things. Jesus said doing the right things for the wrong reasons is evil too. These were people doing impressive things, casting out demons, doing miracles, preaching great messages. And Jesus said, yeah, that's evil. Because you did it without me, not with me. See, we get so busy doing things for him sometimes that we have no time to get to know him. And he said, that's what it's all about. I don't want you doing things for me. I want you doing things with me. I want you to know me, to love me, to enjoy me, to be with me. Uh, ten years ago, I met Darby for the first time. I think we have ten years ago this week, by the way. I meant to mention that. This is me up here in the corner. <laughs> Xbox controller in my hand. Some things never change. Still got that. Uh, here's Darby on her phone. Some things never change. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I was actually playing Call of Duty Zombies in this picture. So, some things really don't change because I played that this week. Uh, this is when we met each other for the first time, and I learned some things about Darby. 
And over time, I got to know some things about Darby. We became social media friends, so I knew things like her birthday and some of her likes and dislikes, some of the things she would post and repost. But now we've been married seven years. Now I'm starting to really know Darby. I knew some things about her. Now I really begin to know her, know her heart. I know some of her motivations, some of the things behind just what she says and does. Do we know Jesus? Do we just know some facts about him? Do we just know some information about him? Um, in just a minute, I'm going to pray. I want to invite you to pray. Maybe you're watching online, or maybe you're here, and uh, you're like, there's never been a moment where I asked Jesus to be king of my life. I've been on my path, and it's been about getting to my objectives. And uh, maybe it's time to try a different path. Tell him you're ready to walk his path, to taste and see that he offers abundant life to all who cry out to him become students of how you live in love. Maybe say, I'm not ready for that yet. That's okay. Why don't you try out the way that Jesus presented, the way of living and loving, and see if it doesn't lead to a more joy-filled and abundant life. I've found that it has. And I think it will for you too. I believe there are two paths through life. We get to choose which one we're on. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the invitation to become your students. Thank you for living and dying and coming back to life because of your death and resurrection. We can live the life that you live. We can enjoy community with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And that community is a community that will last forever and never, ever end. God, forgive me for many times. I do religious things in your name, but I do them without you, without thought of you. That many times I can make religious things about me completely devoid of the 